Well, please turn with me to the Old Testament once again, but this time to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, on page 74, as we read together the Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I'm not sure uh, how much we're meant to see uh, a very precise order in the Ten Ten Commandments. Excuse me. Obviously, Commandments 1 to 4 come first because they relate to God, and commandments 5 to 10 come second because they relate to our duty to other people. So there's obviously an order in that respect. And then it's clear that the first commandment is first because of its fundamental importance. You shall have no other gods before me. The fifth commandment may be the most important of the commandments that relate to other people, as we thought about when we looked at the fifth commandment some weeks ago. But the order of the other commandments may or may not be significant. No doubt many articles, if not books, have been written arguing for a very precise, careful, deliberate order in the commandments. But it does seem that perhaps this commandment, the tenth, is placed last deliberately for good reasons. It is different from the others. And it is a kind of a catch-all commandment that acts as a final safeguard to help us to keep all the others. For the tenth commandment is purely to do with the mind. It is wholly, exclusively internal. And that, of course, is where every other sin begins. All sin begins in the mind. Every action, every word has its origin in the mind. Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. And that's why the Bible again and again lays such emphasis on the importance of guarding the mind. Coveting is not so much about what we do as what we want to do, what we plan to do, what we long to do, what we fantasize about doing, whether we actually ever do it or not. And perhaps that's why the commandments finish with this one. 
Because if we understand this commandment, if we obey this commandment, it will guard us against breaking any of the others. This commandment penetrates to the very deepest parts of our souls. It challenges us and convicts us about our desires, desires that may never ever find expression. No one else in the world, not even the people that are closest to us in this world, may ever even suspect that those desires are there. And yet they are there. And they're sinful. And this commandment challenges us about them. You shall not covet. Well, let's ask three questions about this commandment. First of all, what is coveting? What is coveting? What do we mean or what does the Bible mean by coveting? Our English word covet almost always has a negative sense. It's not a good thing ever to covet. But the Hebrew word that's used here in Exodus chapter 20 verse 17, the Hebrew word can be good or can be bad. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's a word that simply means to desire something. And so as we sang in Psalm 19, it's used in verse 10 of that psalm, speaking about God's laws. They are to be desired more than gold. They are to be coveted more than gold. It is exactly the same word that is used in Psalm 19 as is used in Exodus 20, verse 17. There's nothing wrong, you see, with desire in and of itself. Buddhism teaches that all desire is evil. You're not allowed to desire anything if you're a Buddhist, because wanting anything, desiring anything, shows that your heart is bound up with material things. That's not what the Bible teaches. Ambition and desire and longing are good things. They are God-given things, as long as their object is God-centered. This commandment is not forbidding desire of any sort whatsoever. It prohibits us from wanting what God has forbidden. That's the key. The key phrase in the commandment is that little phrase, your neighbors, your neighbors. You're not to desire, you're not to covet what belongs to someone else. And specifically, the commandment mentions his house, his wife, his servants, and his animals, his ox or his donkey. Now, why itemize those things? Why are they spelt out here? Why are they singled out? Well, one writer argues quite compellingly, I think, that these are representative things. It's not as if you're not allowed to covet these things, but you can covet other things. No, these things stand for certain things. The house stands for security. His wife obviously represents his marriage. His servants are what enabled a man to enjoy leisure time. 
The more servants that you have, then the less work you had to do yourself. The more leisure time you could have. And animals were a measure of wealth and status in the ancient world. In other words, these are exactly the same five things that people still covet today. Three and a half thousand years later. Security, marriage, leisure, wealth, and status. The whole range of human experience. And these are the things that we are forbidden to covet. We're not to covet anything that belongs to someone else. We're not to take it, obviously. That's, that's, that's the eighth commandment, isn't it? We're not to steal. But the tenth commandment tells us that we're not even to want it. It's not enough that you stop yourself from stealing it unlawfully. You're not even to desire it. It's a very all-inclusive commandment. It covers wanting anything that God doesn't intend us to have. At any time, in the present or in the future, in any amount that we might want to have it. It's a very searching commandment. The very desire for something that God has forbidden is itself sinful. This commandment, perhaps more than any other, forces us to look within at our hearts this morning. We're not to indulge the thought of sin. Now, you know very well that you can't stop sinful thoughts from coming into your mind. They come into our minds unbidden. But we are responsible for what we do with those thoughts after they come into our minds. And the Tenth Commandment tells us that we are not to nurse those sinful thoughts into sinful desires. A desire may or may not lead us to further sin, but the desire itself for something that God has forbidden, that desire itself is wrong. James says, speaking about this very subject in James 1.14, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the Tenth Commandment tells us that we are to to snuff that out. We are to nip it in the bud. We are to suffocate that sin at the very beginning of the process, when it is a desire for something, an evil desire for something, that God has forbidden. So what is coveting? It's the desire for something that God has forbidden. Then second question, why do we covet? Why do we covet? We all do covet to a greater or lesser extent. This will be perhaps the besetting sin for some of you here. Uh, For others, it's not a sin that you need to wrestle with every day, uh, but perhaps just from time to time. But we do all covet. Why? Two reasons. One, we have a fallen nature, 
And two, we live in a fallen world. We have a fallen nature. We were thinking about that in Jeremiah chapter 8. We're sinners, and so we sin. But it, that's a kind of a lazy answer, isn't it? We covet because we're sinners. We're, we're, we covet because we have a fallen nature. There are two particular sins that push us especially towards coveting. One is a lack of faith. Lack of faith. Because coveting is a failure, isn't it, to trust that God will really give us what we need. Have you ever thought about it in that way? When we covet, we are failing to trust that God knows what we need and that he will give us or has given us what we need. He's told us that he will meet our needs. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Or Matthew 6, verse 30. Jesus says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Or Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The Bible is full of verses like that, isn't it? God will give us what we need. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and he ordains what we have and what we need. And when we covet more than God has chosen to give us, we're doubting that, aren't we? We're casting aspersions on our Father's wisdom and his goodness. We need to trust that God knows best, that he is infinitely wise, and that he knows what is right and what is good for us better than we do that we can't be trusted to know what is good for us and what we need. Think of the mess you would make of your life if you suddenly had the power to grant yourself whatever you thought you needed. Think of the, the, the terrible harm you would do to yourself and to others if you had that power for just a few minutes. We need to trust that God knows best and that if you needed a bigger house, if you needed more money, he would give it to you. He hasn't given it to you, and so you don't need it. It's a lack of faith to covet. And then the other sin that particularly pushes us towards coveting is pride. One of the most characteristic sins of our fallen nature. And one of the ways that pride manifests itself most clearly is in a covetous spirit. It's that spirit, it's that attitude that says, I deserve better. I ought to have what he has. It's not fair that they have that and I don't. Uh, it's that spirit that resents someone having more than we do. It's the desire to keep up with the Joneses, or preferably outstripping those obnoxious Joneses altogether. Pride breeds that desire to have more than our neighbor, 
Because we believe that we are at least as good, at least as deserving as they are, if not better. It's our pride, isn't it, that leads us to covet and envy and resent the success of others, their popularity, their achievements, their qualifications, their knowledge, their wisdom, their influence, their job, their family, their whole life. It's our pride that corrodes our relationship with them and pushes us towards coveting. So we covet because of our fallen nature, our lack of faith, and our pride in particular. But then another big factor in causing us to covet, and this is perhaps a bigger factor now than it ever has been at any other time in history, is our fallen world. Not just our fallen nature inside us, but the fallen world all around us, the stimulus of our culture. We live in a society that encourages coveting, that in many ways depends on coveting in hundreds and hundreds of ways every day. The whole advertising industry is built upon making people covet, isn't it? It depends for its existence on the fact that by nature we are coveters. Sounds a little bit like covenanters, doesn't it? You wouldn't want to get those two mixed up. Advertising, for the most part, is designed to make people want things that they don't have and things that they don't particularly need. Advertising is not about responsibly and honestly and impartially explaining to potential customers the merits and demerits of this or that product. That's not what advertising is about. Very little information is ever conveyed in adverts. Isn't that right? Even to compare adverts today with 20 years ago or 30 years ago, certainly before that, there used to be a lot more information, a lot more talking, a lot more writing. Whereas now it's, it's wordless. Nobody says anything very much. There's not very much information that's given. It's all about image. It's all about feelings, isn't it? A, a visceral response to what we see. People are shrewdly and craftily, cleverly playing on our covetous natures. They're manipulating us. They're trying to push our buttons. That's why companies pay billions and billions every year in advertising. They do that because it works. Data mining, gathering, harvesting data from every interaction that you have uh, by email or on the internet or through social media, uh, data mining is huge business. All this data that you quite liberally give consent to being shared through cookie settings and all the rest of it, uh, data that you might think is completely irrelevant, and yet it can be used to track and to monitor your habits uh, when you're online, where you go, what you look at. We even heard recently of a friend who had been discussing ice baths and 
uh, you probably know that uh, our phones are constantly listening to us, uh, analyzing things that we're saying, not that they're recording every conversation that's being sent to China necessarily, although who knows, but certainly listening for key words and, and, and using that kind of data to target and tailor advertising. And this friend happened to be discussing ice baths uh, with his son. And lo and behold, within half an hour, he was being bombarded with adverts online for ice baths. They hadn't Googled it. They hadn't typed anything into their phone or to their computer. They'd just been talking about it. But the, the data miners were at work harvesting that information and then tailoring adverts. Men and women devote their whole lives, this is their work every day, thinking about how to manipulate the human mind to make it covet. And they, 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 they employ the highest standards and the, 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 the greatest artistic skill and psychological insight. This is big business. Advertisers divide the human race into different target groups that are carefully categorized and classified, and they aim their advertising at particular profiles. This is the science of psychographics, if you're interested in this kind of thing. Uh, and so they talk about OINKS, O-I-N-K-S, which stands for One Income, No Kids. Those are the OINKS, and they have a particular kind of way of, of making oinks covet. And then there are dinks, double income, no kids. And there are glams, graying, leisured, affluent, middle-aged people. Uh, and they have dozens of these categories and subcategories, and they know exactly what appeals and the kind of language to use and the kind of music and the kind of pictures. You are being targeted People are being paid vast sums of money to try and think themselves inside your mind and heart to manipulate it. Advertising is not random. It is planned out like a military operation in excruciating detail. And as Christians, we need to be aware of that and we need to be on our guard against it so that we are we're never coming to any advert, wherever we see it, in a kind of neutral, open-minded attitude, but that we're coming ready to resist the covetous desires that that advert is designed and has been tested to try to create within us. You've got to say to yourself, I'm not going to let myself be manipulated like this, because God's Word says you shall not covet be aware of that whenever you're exposed to advertising. Television shows, celebrity lifestyle magazines. This maybe seems a little bit outdated now, but these things, it's all social media now, isn't it, and Instagram, but they parade before our covetous eyes how the other half lives. And there's the promise that you can have something of this. If you just buy this shampoo, if you use this toilet cleaner, if you live in this kind of house, well, then you can be just like them. And we need to be so careful, don't we, when we're window shopping, uh, when we're surfing the Internet, 
when we're flicking through magazines, even the Argos catalog. I don't even know if you can get an Argos catalog in paper anymore, but these problems have not reduced. They've only increased exponentially, haven't they, with the availability and the accessibility of these things through the Internet. And all of these things feed covetousness. They breed dissatisfaction with what we have. So that you look at your old, scratched, but perfectly serviceable furniture, and you want to replace it with something that's new, something that's more modern. You look at your wardrobe, and you hear the advertisers and the trendsetters telling us that these colors uh, and, and these fashions, they're, they're out of date, and you need to go out and you need to buy this season's range. I don't know if you like watching home improvement programs. Nothing wrong with watching home improvement programs in moderation. But they can feed covetous desires in us, can't they? This is normal. This is what everybody's doing. This is what your house should look like. You should have this too. And then the credit industry enables all of this, doesn't it, and depends on people coveting. There would be no credit industry if there was no covetousness. It makes money readily available to people. Why? So that they can satisfy their cravings for a new car that the advert says they have to have, or this season's colors, or the new conservatory, or the new gadget, or the new phone, or the new whatever. Is it any wonder that people are crippled by debt? It's harder to resist this sin of covetousness, wanting what your neighbor has, because it is so in your face. You don't just see what your neighbor has over the fence. You can see what every, every other person in the world has at the click of a button. It's hard to resist. We see these affluent lifestyles, and then the credit industry comes along and says, you can have it. Here's the money. You can drive away with a new car tomorrow and you don't need to pay anything. Okay, you may have to suddenly start working twice as many hours. You may have to take an overdraft. You may be up to your eyes in debt for the next 20 years. But you can have it if you want it. We need to be aware of these pressures, not just from within our fallen nature, but aggravated and exacerbated by the fallen world around us. It's very clever. It's very subtle. Sometimes it's not subtle at all, but often it is. And it's very hard to avoid. So believe that God has given you what you need and mortify that pride that tells you that you ought to have what they have or even more. So why do we covet? And then lastly, what is the result of coveting? Where does coveting lead? Well, let me suggest three or four things. First of all, coveting leads to other sins. Coveting is wrong in itself, but it is wrong because it leads to other sins. The desires that we have usually don't remain just desires in our hearts. 
Nine times out of ten, they turn into action. We see that right at the beginning of human history, at the the, the very first sin. Genesis 3, verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable, is the same word that comes from covet, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Desire turned into action. And that pattern has been repeated endlessly ever since. You remember the story of Achan in Joshua 7.21. And the, the language deliberately echoes the language of Eden and the fall. Achan says, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, I desired them, and took them. He'd have sinned if he had just coveted them. But he didn't just covet. The desire produced sin, and sin leads to death. As soon as you break this commandment, as soon as you begin to covet, you are on the way to breaking one of the other nine commandments. The New Testament describes covetousness as idolatry. In Colossians 3 verse 9, so it's breaking the second commandment. Many people desecrate the Sabbath by working so that they can have the money that they need to satisfy their covetous desires. How many thefts spring from coveting the possessions of someone else? How many adulteries begin with the illicit desire for another man's wife, for another woman's husband? Coveting leads to other sins. Another result of coveting is that it's addictive. It's addictive. It's never satisfied. Coveting doesn't go away the more you have. As long as there are others who have more, and there always will be, we will always be tempted to covet, won't we? Even those who have vast oceans of wealth, they're not immune to coveting. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, Solomon says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Someone once asked Howard Hughes, the richest man in the world uh, in his day, a multi, well, he would be a multi-billionaire, trillionaire in today's terms, the Elon Musk of his day. Somebody once asked Howard Hughes, how much money is enough? And very honestly, though sadly, he answered just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Coveting is addictive. You don't solve an addiction by giving into it. That just feeds the addiction. Coveting, thirdly, costs us our peace of mind. Here's another tragic result of coveting. It robs us of our peace of mind. Because if you're a coveter, if this is one of your besetting sins, or if you're giving in to coveting in, in some area, then you don't enjoy what you do have. 
like we were thinking about in the children's address. You can't be satisfied with what you have because your mind and your heart and your imagination is consumed by the thing you don't have. You see that very clearly in children. He's, this child is absolutely delighted with this toy until he sees another child that has a different toy and suddenly that's the only thing that he wants. No interest in the toy that he had that he was perfectly satisfied with before. And we don't grow out of that attitude. It's not just children. Remember Haman in Esther chapter 5. Haman boasted to his family about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. All these honors, all this riches and blessing and wealth and status. But then he says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. It's an illustration of Proverbs 14, verse 30. Envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. It robs us of our peace of mind. And then lastly, coveting often leads to violence. It often leads to violence. It's programmed, in a sense, to do that. James, again, speaks about this in James 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. How often we see that playing out on the individual interpersonal scale and on the international scale. Think of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. There's the king of Israel. Tons of wealth, property, and luxury galore, but all he wants is his neighbor's vineyard. That's the only thing that he can see. He focuses on this one thing that he doesn't have. And in the end, it leads to violence and bloodshed and murder in order to get it. Isn't this why there are so many wars and conflicts? One nation coveting the land or the economy or the natural resources or the trade of another nation. How many millions have already died in the 21st century because of the covetousness of their rulers? Coveting leads to violence. So this commandment probes deeply, doesn't it, into our inmost being. Not even the level of our intentions, but before that, the level of our desires. It challenges us about the things that we want, the things that we daydream about. And I wonder what those things are in your case. Are they good things? Or are they selfish, covetous things? This was the commandment, you remember, that Paul implies 
particularly convicted him. Outwardly, he was this immaculate, flawless Pharisee. As to legalistic righteousness, he said, I was faultless. And yet inside, consumed by covetous desires. And maybe that's a word for some of us. Outwardly, we look so decent. Nobody would ever suspect the horrible sewer of covetousness that there is springing up daily in our hearts and in our minds. How we need a Savior whose desires were only ever holy and righteous. And how we need the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to change our covetous hearts so that we desire only what is good and righteous and holy and pure. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and your spirit that search our hearts and lay bare uh, the secret recesses of our desires and our longings and our thoughts. We pray that even as your word has convicted us this morning, that you would draw us afresh to our Savior. We thank you that through him we have forgiveness for every sin. We are guilty, O God, but we thank you that you have provided the solution, the only solution for that guilt. Thank you that we don't need to despair. Thank you that we don't need to try to do the impossible and to live a life that is completely, perfectly free of all covetous desires. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he kept this commandment for us. Thank you that he died to take the punishment due to us for breaking this commandment. We thank you for your Holy Spirit changing our desires, taking away our covetous thoughts and our covetous longings. We pray that you would do that in us more and more this very day. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.